Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yaggs. Well, welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, to the Boston University Law School podcast. I'm your host, David Yaz. I am the former publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. My current day job, I'm a vice president at Bernstein Global Wealth Management. But as I say in every installment of this podcast, most importantly, I am a proud alum of the law school. And as we continue on with these series of podcasts focusing on interesting issues brought up by members of the BU community, professors and such, I am delighted to be here. And we have a terrific, terrific topic for you today. And I guarantee you, this is one you're going to say, you know, I never thought this would have been a big issue. So let me tell you about this case around which our our guest is connected. And the name of the case is Flores VR versus United States. Now, in that case, it had to do with Ruben Flores VR. This gentleman was deported to Mexico after he was convicted of importing marijuana and served jail time. But more interestingly, here's the twist to this case. Ruben's father is an American citizen, and there's a great debate over a law that makes it easier for mothers to transmit citizenship to their out-of-wedlock children than it is for fathers. In In other words, this individual's father could not transfer his citizenship and could not prevent his son from being deported. So now today we spotlight the Supreme Court case, and we'll let you know how that turned out, the importance of gender equality in citizenship laws, and the reaction to the Supreme Court's decision to uphold an archaic federal law. That's the way it turned out as of right now. Flores VR still remains deported, not welcome in this country. So joining me is Professor Kristen Collins. She's a professor of law at BU School of Law, as you might have guessed. And Professor Collins is a legal scholar and a legal historian. Much of her work in her career has focused on gender equality. She has a special interest in citizenship law. So, Chris, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. I'm happy to be here um, talking about this case with you today. Well, we're very happy to have you because you seem to be the the person to go to on, again, a subject I wouldn't, I I admit, being a a very... um, humble legal scholar myself, I still would never have guessed that the laws would have been, I guess fair to say, unequal when it comes to uh, mothers and fathers and the laws regarding citizenship. So I mentioned the case. Why don't you tell us, Chris, your connection to this case, and then just give us a brief overview of what we need to know about it. So my connection to the case, is, and as I'll, I'll explain in just, in just a minute, was after I tell you about the case itself, as I was the lead author on an amicus brief that was filed in the case Flores VR versus United States. Uh, Ruben Flores VR, uh, who I'll call Ruben Jr., uh, was born in Mexico in 1974 to an unmarried couple, an American American father whose name is Ruben Flores uh, VR as well, Ruben Sr., um, and his mother was Mexican. Uh, and so he was brought to the United States as a two-month-old because of health complications he had as a newborn. Um, and he stayed in the United States ever, you know, and grew up in the United States in his American father's household. Um, and as you mentioned, he was later convicted of importing marijuana and was then deported. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was deported under the presumption that he was uh, uh, illegally in the United States. Um, and he came back in the United States and was detected by the INS and then 
indicted for what under federal law is, is a reentry offense. You know, it's it's it's, a, it's an independent crime to reenter the United States if you've been deported. Mm-hmm. So Ru- let me let me make sure I get this right. So Ruben Jr. was born in Mexico. But then his dad brought him to the United States as an infant, and he was raised by his dad here. Right, and his father—well, he was his, as, as you'll as you'll find out in a second. And this ends up being an important fact in the case. His father was 16 uh, when Reuben Jr. was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when he came back, he was raised in his father's household. His father was still living with his mother, so he was raised by his father and his paternal grandmother. Got it. Okay. In the United States. Mm-hmm. So that that's the background with respect to... And one would think, we can see where this is headed, that that seems to make him pretty American, just sort of in a vacuum, right? One would think, right? I mean, right. If, if you're born in the United States, mm-hmm. then you automatically are a citizen, whether you leave the country two months later, right? The baby who's born in the United States and leaves the country two months later is a citizen for the rest of his or her life under the 14th Amendment. So this is sort of the reverse of that. The child who was raised in the United States and has that sort of cultural upbringing, um, but was born in another country. Um, so what, I'm sorry, I might have missed this. Was he legally a U.S. citizen at any point? Well, that's Jr.? the question that was that's being question. litigated, okay. right? Got it. Yep. Um, so, and, and you mentioned, I just want to say one thing before we get deep into it. You mentioned at the outset that the Supreme Court upheld the law. Um, as, as you know, the Supreme Court tied in this case, mm-hmm. which we're getting ahead of the story a little bit, but just so there's, uh, it actually still is an open question as to whether this, this uh, statute that I'll describe in just a second is con- unconstitutional, uh, because uh, Justice uh, Kagan had just been appointed um, and had previously served as Solicitor General. She recused herself from this case because she was uh, involved, you know, to what extent I don't know, but at least nominally involved in uh, the case as it was being handled by the Solicitor General's office. So she recused herself from all cases in which in which that was the situation, and this case included. Um, but let me tell you just a little bit about uh, the the law before we get ahead of sure. ahead of the case, uh, ahead of ourselves too much. Um, like I said, if you're born here in the United States, you're automatically a citizen. But if you're born abroad to unite to U.S. parents, to American parents, or at least you have one citizen parent. Um, then your citizenship is not governed by the 14th Amendment. Instead, it's governed by this very elaborate set of statutes. And I won't go into all of the elaborate statutes because it would take us an entire podcast. But just with respect to unmarried mothers and unmarried fathers, um, the statute treats those uh, the parents differently. Um, if you're an American father, then at least part of the statute requires uh, that in order to confer citizenship to your non-marital marital foreign-born child, you have to have lived in the United States for five years before you, the father, turned 16, but after the birth of the child. Okay. So in uh, other words... This is the complicated part, yeah. right? And this, that Reuben Sr. would not have qualified for and that. And he couldn't do that because, as I just mentioned, uh, Reuben Sr. was 16 when the child was born. So it was, it was impossible for him to satisfy the statute. There's nothing he could have done. Right, right, to satisfy the statute. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the complicated part. The simple part's this. Had Reuben Jr.'s mother been the American citizen, it would have been a completely different situation. Um, an unmarried mother has to do almost nothing. She has to have simply lived in the United States for one year at any point of her life, and her foreign-born child um, is a United States citizen, nothing else. 
So, and now I'll apologize, Chris, for perhaps jumping okay. ahead. But why? Why? Why is the law set up that way? Why was it set up that way in the first place? Um, well, um, why? Would, that's a very complicated question. Why does the Why does the mother so, get the benefit of the doubt? And so the why does the mother get the benefit of the doubt? Mm-hmm. Um, this ha- This is you know one of the puzzles that the historian's brief was supposed to help the court uh, wrestle with and and resolve. Um, there's a long history of sex discrimination and regulation of citizenship law. Um, in addition to the parental residency requirement um, that I described for unmarried fathers, for example, the unmarried fathers have to do a whole bunch of other things. They have to legitimate the child before the child turns 18. They have to pledge to support the child. They have to provide proof of parenthood. They have to do all these things. Um, and like I said, the only thing the mother has to do is to have lived in the United States for some year. Um, so in a nutshell, the statutes make it very difficult for fathers to transmit citizenship to non-marital foreign-born children, but very easy for mothers in a similar situation. Um, and the question you ask is why? I mean, my view is that there's a long-standing assumption that outside marriage fathers had little to do with their children. Right. The moms, since the moms are historically the ones who raise the kids, the moms would be the ones who would be able to, you know, transmit their citizenship to the kid when the dad is is off doing other things, busy with his career, etc. Well, there's that set of presumptions that I would call sort of cultural or social, but there's there were also legal presumptions and legal uh, legal principles in place. Fathers actually had no obligation towards these children under the sort of old bad law, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they um, and they also had few, if any, parental rights with respect to these children. Um, and uh, that wasn't, uh, as you mentioned, that's not the case with mothers. We presume that mothers are going to raise these children. And also, the law for a long time gave mothers and mothers only obligations and rights with respect to these children. Um, obviously, that's changed. But the law, this law that's at issue in, in the Flores VR case, is a vestige of that is premised on the same archaic um, sort of understandings of what mothers and fathers do um, and what rights and responsibilities they have vis-a-vis non-marital children. Um, And so the law has grown, the citizenship law grew up around those kinds of of old understandings and hasn't mm-hmm. been changed yet. Of course, you got to love the term archaic because uh, you, once you, you call the law archaic, we know which side of the debate you're on, right? I don't think anyone's ever been in favor of a, a, a championing an ar- a so-called archaic law, but that's okay. Um, when I heard about this case again, I was surprised that this law was even on the books in the first place. And judging by the way that the voices in this case came forward, I think many were, Yours was one of eight briefs submitted on this case. You correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. Um, and seven out of the eight were on your side in favor of correcting this inequality in the law. The one holdout being the Immigration Reform Law Institute, which I'm going to ho- go ahead and guess is is a group that is extremely cautious and, and unyielding un, uh, when it comes to expanding our immigration laws. Is that fair to say? I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I um, I think that's fair to say. One thing I do want to say um, mm-hmm. about this case, which is a citizenship law case, um, you know, it's it's not 
interestingly, although the, the, the reform organization you mentioned is an immigration, uh, what, what's the name of the organization? I'm immigration sure. Reform Law Institute. Right, right. Immigration Reform Law Institute, um, which I, I didn't know much about until I became involved with this case. And I, I mean, I've read their brief, but I don't, I, I, I have no views as to what they do or what their, what, what their larger project is. Um, that said, this isn't actually an immigration law case. It's a citizenship law case. Mm-hmm. And the best way for me to explain that to you is in order to determine um, who can naturalize, immigrate and naturalize to the United States, you have to make the prior determination as to whether they're a citizen to begin with, mm-hmm. right? So Ruben Flores Vr Jr. Is not, is, is, was not trying to immigrate. He was claiming that he was a citizen. Right. That he couldn't be deported because he was a citizen. That was his claim. So the laws... They don't. The, the laws at issue in this case are not immigration laws or naturalization laws. That is to say, laws that tell us, you know, under what circumstances somebody can, who is, say, a citizen of Canada or Mexico or uh, England, can move to the United States and then naturalize. Uh, these laws actually determine tell us who's a citizen to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably, you know, at least worth worth bearing in mind that this isn't really an immigration law case um, in, a, in any sort of either technical or actual way. Of course, I suppose the other side would say we have a larger, you know, mission at hand to, you know, control who is a citizen and right. who isn't. Right, which but, is uh, where, but, why that organization would get involved. So yes, sure. most of the briefs filed in this case, most of the amicus briefs were in support of Flores VR. I think there's, there is a, it's, it's not just the legal historian me who thinks this is an archaic law. You know, many Many people coming from many different uh, perspectives uh, see a problem with this. Well, clearly, um, and I didn't mean to pick on you about that. Oh, no, no, thing, that's okay. But, but, I love the word archaic. Um, no, 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 <laughs> no, works. no, not yeah, at all. It works. Not at all. So, so the law uh, deemed by many intelligent voices is archaic, and yet the Supreme Court comes out with a, a split void of, vote of four to four. Tell us what your reaction was like when you, when you learned of that. My first reaction, unsurprisingly, was... Um, was disappointment for Ruben Flores Vr. Jr. Um, and Ruben Flores Vr. Sr. and his entire family, but you know he is now completely barred from living in the United States, from entering the United States, the country he was raised in and where his family lives. And for his sake and for others in his situation, and for many of the larger legal principles involved, I obviously would have preferred a victory in the form of opinion striking down the law at issue as unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given what we know about some of the justice views on these issues, and we know some of their views, or at least can make a really good educated guess based on prior cases raising similar issues and also based on the questioning and oral argument, which I attended, um, I think the outcome was as good as we could have expected on a, on, given the eight justice lineup that we had, right? And, and nobody knows how Justice Kagan, um, would, thinks about this issue. She wasn't, she obviously didn't participate in oral argument either. Uh, so it, there's yeah, as an, as no an, way to really know, but I do think I do think it was probably, given the recusal, it was probably as good a vote as we could have gotten. As an aside, there, so there's no mechanism to appoint uh, a justice, especially in the case where one of the justices recuses themselves. Nope. It kind of um, kind of kills the the elegance of having nine. Supreme Court just why do we even bother having nine if sometimes we're only going to have eight? It doesn't actually happen that frequently that right. justices recuse. Um, and I think, I think, and I could be wrong on this, but I think I heard from 
in a reliable, read in a reliable source that I, I don't know, remember how many cases Justice Kagan recused herself from this term, and I think this would likely be the only term where it's relevant. Although some cases may percolate up next, percolate up next term as well. That you know, that in the subsequent terms, with, she had some involvement, in and she'll have to recuse herself. But that term would have been the term that where most of these cases would have come up. Um, and I think only two of them ended up in tie votes. Mm-hmm. So it does. You know, it. it we do have a lot of five-four splits on this court, mm-hmm. as as we all know, and so it's not surprising that that a, a, an issue like this that raises a you know sort of a a particular kind of constitutional claim uh, that the court has tended to go five-four on mm-hmm. um, that we would have ended up in a tie in this case. It's it's not entirely surprising. So, from your perspective, is there a bright side? Is there a positive signal in this four-four vote? I'm hopeful. I, I can't. Nobody can predict the future. Um, I wish that were one of my powers, but it's not. Um, I, I'm hopeful, and that's about all I can say. I mean, I do think the court will uh, entertain this issue again, or try to resolve this issue again um, in the near future. I don't think it, it, a tie vote affirms the judgment of the court below, in this case, which was the Ninth Circuit. Um, and leaves that decision, sort of that judgment intact, but it doesn't resolve the question that was raised. Um, so as a consequence, what we have is a clearly defined um, constitutional claim that now the court has not resolved, and it has sort of openly not resolved it, right? Right. Um, so I do think it's quite possible that the court will want to go back to this again. That, that would be exactly what happened uh, in, in two cases that came up or were decided by the court in 1998 and 2000, um, the court tackled a similar issue in, in a case called Miller versus Albright, which was decided in 1998. But the the opinion was so fractured that it didn't give any clear guidance to the lower courts or, or lawyers uh, involved in, in in cases. So it granted cert in another case very quickly, I think a term or two later, and that was the the opinion. Win versus INS decided in 2000. Mm-hmm. So th- if it, if the court does do that, so there's a there's a sort of precedent to to trying to resolve this case, these cases when they when they can't can't do it for whatever reason the first go round. So I would think that the court would grant cert uh, on this same on the same issue uh, if the right case comes up or if a case comes up um, in the near future. Well, let's get into the future a little bit more on the other side of the break. We are going to take a break now. We're talking with Professor Kristen Kahns from the BU School of Law. Please join us on the other side of the break for the thrilling conclusion to this podcast. Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Well, welcome back to the BU Law Podcast. Once again, I'm David Yaz, your host, and we're talking today with Professor 
Kristen Collins, Associate Professor of Law at BU School of Law, about this very interesting topic about equality when it comes to citizenship laws. And in talking about this this case, Flores VR and this gentleman who, unfortunately, it seems, has no hope of coming back into the country, even though he was raised in the country by his dad, who is a U.S. citizen, would be different, clearly, if it were his mom raising him. Um, tell us, Professor Collins, about Congress's role in all of this. And, and in fact, if you can include some history on the way they've treated gender and citizenship laws in the past. Sure. That's a, that's a great question and set of issues. Um, obviously, Congress enacted this statute, and the, the basic statute upon which our modern law is, is sort of, it's, it's a, you know, slightly re- a revised version of, uh, was put in place in 1940 when there was a major overhaul of our nationality laws. Um, and since then, Congress has made, has tweaked the statute, but the, the sex-based differentiation between um, unmarried American citizen fathers and mothers uh, remains intact. Um, you know, even before Congress put the, this set of statutes in place, there were practices in, in administrative agencies and judges sort of making up the law on the on the on the way along the way uh, that resembled that really resembled the practices that are now codified in in federal statute. So, I think what you know, my view of what Congress did in 1940 was to sort of codify existing practices, and those existing practices. Uh, were based on, you know, the kinds of ideas about uh, mothers and fathers as parents um, and outdated, you know, family law principles uh, that the administrators and the judges had been sort of following and adopting all along. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these weren't, this was not isolated, um, and by that I mean that there were all sorts of other laws that Congress enacted in this basic area of sex-based regulation of citizenship that, you know, would probably shock many listeners. Um, To give one example, in 1907, Congress enacted a law uh, that stripped American women of their citizenship, expatriated them if they married a foreign man. Um, The presumption was that they would take their husband's citizenship. Um, So Congress has, you know, done all sorts of things that today we would look and say, wow, that's... um, that's a strange practice. Have they gotten anything right along the way? Uh, well, they did actually. They have, they have changed laws. The 1907 law uh, was uh, was changed by Congress, not by the Supreme Court. You know, the court didn't strike it down as unconstitutional. Um, women's organizations in the 1920s and 30s successfully had that law uh, uh, changed, um, and there were other laws uh, with respect to. Um, men's and women's rights as mothers and fathers to transmit citizenship that were also sex-based that have been changed along the way. So Congress is totally capable um, of doing this, but it, you know, it takes people getting involved. The mm-hmm. reason why women's organizations were and, and sort of their allies and in, and in certain sort of progressive international law organizations that got involved as well, um, they were successful because they pushed hard in Congress. Is it is it a little trickier for something like this to to rally support simply because there's not necessarily a natural constituency for people like Ruben Jr. in this case? I think that's a that's a that's a fair statement. There obviously are people involved. You know, it's fathers like Ruben Ruben's father, Ruben Senior. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, their parental rights are at stake, mm-hmm. and their rights as citizens are at stake. Um, but it, I do think it's it's um, 
it is, it's hard to know how many, um, and I don't know the answer to how many people are affected by this uh, law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's hard to know what sort of class, what size group you're talking about. Um, but I do think there's a constituency problem that is to say that getting a group rallied up about this is, is would be difficult. Right. So, so Congress has made a lot of, in your opinion, you know, mistakes in the past when it comes to equality and citizenship law, and they fixed a couple. Is there any hope, you know, perhaps spurred by the, the news of this case, that Congress might fix this law? You know, hope springs eternal, right? <laughs> um, I, uh, I don't know what's possible in Congress. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, and I don't know what's possible in Congress theoretically on this issue. I don't know what's possible right now in Congress. Uh, for the foreseeable future, I don't see that as a realistic um, expectation uh, or even aspiration. Um, but like I said, it does. It, it, things can change quickly, and um, if people get involved and people get interested um, and make their opinions heard, um, then you know things can change. Uh, but it takes it takes a lot. And and right now, I'm not sure that the political climate is really one that would be hospitable to this kind of proposal in Congress. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Constitution, one of the things the Constitution's for. That's right. So don't, but, but, but you know, what you say is if, if you're enraged by this law, if you're, you know, really upset by the result in this case, the best thing you can do is just, is just that, is, is uh, alert your congressman in, in the hopes that uh, the issue stays alive, right? Yep, I think that's that's certainly an, um, is important to make your your views known with your representatives and your senators. I was imploring uh, Professor Collins off the air to get impassioned and very upset about this, in the in the hopes that you know this this podcast uh, professor could you know go viral like crazy, and then all of a sudden we can take credit when the law is um, when the law is amended when the law is fixed. Yes, and when and when that happens, you know the champagne's on me. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, very special thanks to our guest, Professor Kristen Collins, for taking the time and for filling us in in just fantastic fashion about this this issue, which I think is compelling. I hope the issue does stay alive, and I hope we're here to talk about it on a future podcast, perhaps if there's some wrinkle in this case. Now, uh, Chris, if there's if someone wanted to contact you or learn more about this case or this topic, what uh, what should they know? Well, I have email, like everybody else. And my email address is collinsk at bu.edu. You're welcome to email me about this. Um, I, If you want to read the, the brief that I was um, sort of the lead author on, the Boston University Law Review published it along with a little introduction that I wrote, a mm-hmm. little essay that I wrote. Um, and that is in volume 91 of the BU Law Review, so and that's available online through the through the law school website, and you can actually just click on the link to the the piece I wrote, which is called "A Short History of Sex and Citizenship: The Historian's Amicus Brief in Flores v. R. versus United States." Well, very good. There you go. Please do check it out. Thanks again, Chris, for the terrific conversation today. If you are looking for editions of the BU Law Podcast, you can find them on the Legal Talk Network on the BU Law website. You can also find them in iTunes. My name is David Yaz, the very proud host of this podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful new year and have a great day. Thanks. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. 
None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law. Law.